This morning's reading is taken from Luke 12, 41 to 59. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and prudent manager whom his master will put in charge of his slaves to give them their allowance of food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master will find at work when he arrives. <coughs> Truly, I tell you, he will put that one in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and if he begins to beat the other slaves, men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces. That slave who knew what his master wanted but did not prepare himself or do what was wanted will receive a severe beating. But one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And from one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. This is the word of the Lord. Going on <laughs> to 51. Yes, Sorry. Yes, yeah. Um, I have a baptism with which to be baptized and what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say, it is going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present, present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Thus, when you go with your accuser before a magistrate, on the way, make an effort to settle the case, or you may be dragged before the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer throw you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Olusheki. Let's hear it for Olusheki. Um, if you've just joined us and not been with us, uh, you may have realized, well, you may be asking yourself, why are they going through these random verses in Luke's gospel? Um, we're just over halfway through a long series right through the Gospel of Luke. And by way of reminder, the reason we're doing that is because of the situation of the world we live in. It doesn't require a rocket scientist sociologist to understand that 
uh, the particular place we're in in British society is one where we've been a, a Christian country largely formed by the Christian church, Christian values uh, for many centuries, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that now that is not the case. We're doing whatever we can as a, as a society to secularize and remove God from the equation. The problem with that is the human condition. Because as human beings, we have to worship and orient our affections and our desires towards something. So if you take God out of the equation, we're going to target that towards nature, towards created things, or towards ourselves. And so one of the reasons we're taking the trouble to delve deep into Luke's gospel is because that's the cultural air we're breathing. And I don't know about you, I do not want to approach a few verses in the Bible with this idea or figment of my imagination of Jesus that I'm wanting to just project all my desires onto and inadvertently create a God of my own imagination. The reason we're taking the trouble is to read through Luke's gospel, discover who God's son is, Jesus Christ, and discover what it means to be a disciple following after him, and not the other way around. Go to the Bible and find what we secretly wanted to, desire, secretly wanted to say from the desires of our own hearts. Does this make sense? And so to then to read the Bible in that sense, we're reading it not as an objective scientific exercise, not as a factual accumulation of facts. We're reading it to discover God and to be changed in response. And I don't know about you, I've, I found it absolutely fascinating how punchy Jesus is as we followed his teaching. It's, it's like, you know, we're about to all receive Christmas cards with this beautiful manger scene, you know, peace on earth and goodwill to all men and da-da-da-da-da. And yet, we've been going through Luke's gospel and it's like week after week, it's like, bash, oh man, got to change there. Boom, oh, got to change there. Have you felt that? It's like Jesus is so gritty and I'm, I'm, I'm confounded and confronted by how We've infantilized and just made him so safe. And I'm wanting to say, church, we need to wake up and allow Jesus to make us as a reflection of who he is rather than domesticating him and putting him in a box. So with that, <laughs> with that introduction, let's pray because I need God's help this morning and so do we all. So Holy Spirit, I want to pray that all of my words would be instantly forgotten from this sermon. But Holy Spirit is the teacher, the counselor, the one who guides us into all truth. Would you come now? We open our hearts to you, Lord. We don't want to be safe and we don't want to be people who actually worship ourselves or worship stuff rather than beholding you for who you really are and changing in response to become more like you. Because there's no greater thing than you. You are the pearl of great price. You're the treasure in the field that we gladly sell everything to receive and obtain. And we bless you this morning. We worship you. Thank you, thank you for that glorious worship all about you. And we say, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy to receive all honor and to be high and lifted up. And may be high and lifted up through this message. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <laughs> 
So the context of this passage, these random four, uh, we've got a parable, we've got a teaching, we've got a confrontation, and then we've got a life situation. Uh, four different um, things, all in, a, all in a flow there. The context of this is right at the beginning of chapter 12. There's thousands of people pressing around Jesus, so much so that people are getting trampled. And in that context, Jesus gathers his inner team and he says to his disciples, come near, come near, come near, and I need to teach you. And what's coming now is the conclusion of that, this flow of inner teaching being given to the ones who will bear his kingdom, found the church, and deposit an inheritance we're still receiving from after Jesus ascends to heaven. So I'm going to ask two questions this morning. One is, what connects these four different uh, stories, teachings uh, in a row? And secondly, what is the bigger question that Jesus is asking of us from this passage? Uh, And we'll come to that in due course, but let's get into it. Uh, The first is the parable of the faithful or the unfaithful slave. Now we may, well we, we probably won't associate with the context of slaves and masters, but what we I I think everybody can associate with is the drama unfolding in this parable. And the drama's a familiar one. The faithful one is the one when his master departs, is utterly faithful to the master's instructions, and is a good steward of his time and resources to do what is right. The thing we might associate with is with the, the context of the unfaithful slave, The guy who, when left to his own devices, ignores the master's instruction, orients things to his own gain, ultimately oppresses his slaves, and basically drinks, is merry, and has the good life, and left to his own devices, does whatever he wants. And the challenge from this parable to all of us is, when all is stripped away, when no one's watching, when we haven't got a banging worship time here at church, when your spouse, who's a bit further on than you, isn't around to haul you up in your faith, when no one's watching, what do we do? Who do we live for? What comes out of us? My auntie, um, who's not alive now, she ran her family with a rod of iron. And uh, as a result, she forced my cousin to learn the piano. He's the same age as me. And they used to live in this strange house on a hillside where the kitchen was at the top when you came into the house um, and, uh, and the bedrooms were at the top, but the living quarters were down below. And uh, because she was forcing my cousin to learn the piano, every day before dinner, he'd have to do his piano practice. And so she'd be upstairs cooking the dinner. He'd be having to do his piano practice. And um, what what apparently happened is day after day, uh, she'd be cooking away and wafting up the stairs would come this glorious, you know, the scales and the pieces and it was all going on. And suddenly one day she was really puzzled. She suddenly was cooking dinner and she realized, that sounds really similar to yesterday. (laughs) And the glitch... 
the glitch in that scale, it came in the same place. Oh, why doesn't he straighten that out? And the pieces, oh, the, the bit where he slowed down because he couldn't do it, it was in the same place. And she went downstairs and she found him with his feet up watching telly. And he'd recorded on cassette his piano practice, turned it up loud and put it by the stairs so all the music went up and all of that. Anyway, I don't know if you associated with that, but the challenge is who are you when no one's watching? Who are we when no one's watching, when we're far away from church? You know, is he the one we live for when we're on our own? in the secret place when no one's watching. And that's the, that's the challenge of this parable. It gets worse. <laughs> Jesus then goes on to a teaching and he says, I've come with a baptism and it's a baptism of fire. It's the baptism that Luke referred to, uh, that John the Baptist referred to in Luke chapter three. We read about a few months ago. He said, one's coming after me, and he's got a baptism. And, we, and that, that baptism is the Holy Spirit. And everyone goes, yay, woo, and we're going to giggle and fall around. And with fire. And he's coming with his winnowing fork. And he's going to divide the wheat from the chaff. And the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. And Jesus says, I'm bringing that. And then he says, thank you for all the fridge magnets you've made out of the next verse. (laughs) Verse 51, do you think I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. You will not get a Christmas card with that quote on it. (laughs) You know, peace on earth and goodwill towards men, like all that stuff. No. I've not come to bring peace, but rather division. And from now on, five in one household will be divided. Three against two, two against three. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter. You know. Now, some of us in this room will know that. Will know that reality. Where those we care about the most are the face of persecution against Christianity and the pain and agony that causes. You know, how heartbreaking it is. And, the, uh, and I think the challenge in this teaching right now is in that context, do we soften the, te- do we soften the witness of Jesus to those we love the most because we can't bear the conflict? We, as British Christians, are not trained for conflict. We like everybody happy. We like everyone agreeing. We like everybody smiling. We like uh, as much safety and comfort as we can manage. And then we think to ourselves, I'll just place a little big toe off the edge of the boat and just give it a whirl. No. You know, I just feel Jesus is so gritty in, in this gospel and he's training us for the war that we're in which is a spiritual war. It's not against people. And and when we're engaged with those nearest and dearest who are coming at us, we have to employ the fruits of the Spirit. Love, gentleness, joy, peace, patience, da-da-da-da-da. But I think the challenge here is recognizing that if we follow Jesus, 
He comes to divide. And Jesus constantly brings us to the brink, to the, to the brink of decision. How are you going to respond to me is constantly what he's doing. He's always, the heart of the matter for Jesus is always the matter of the heart. He's constantly bringing us to the place. How will you respond to me? And the challenge of this teaching is for us not to soften or hold in or just, just hide it, you know, rein it in a bit. You know, it's like, let, let's not have any sort of talk about church over Christmas because we want the family to be happy. That's what we do, isn't it? Because we don't like the conflict. And yet, I don't want to stand before God and him say to me, what did you do with your life? Well, we just had a quiet Christmas, watched some telly, everyone went away smiling, and not saved. You know, Paul was foaming at the mouth, stoning Christians. He was, he was vehemently against the cause of Christ. And God found him and changed his heart. And we've got to just, we've got to trust the Lord with that. Not be bullish or ignorant or arrogant or any of that. But we have got to accept the challenge of this, which is not softening the challenge of Jesus, even for those around us. Gets worse. You ready? He then says, he then sort of steps back from his inner team and says to the crowds, You guys, you are awesome. You, you know, you're skilled, you're experts at telling the weather. You know, you know when, a, when a scorching wind comes up, this is what it's going to be like. When the sun rises, this is what it's going to be like. But you don't even know what time you're in. You, you don't even, you're not aware of what's really going on spiritually. And I'm deeply challenged by that. Uh, when I was at theological college, I had a big transition to make because I arrived there and I think I was assuming everybody was arriving for radical discipleship. We're going to be pumping all-night prayer meetings. You know, everyone's going to be calling one another higher and then sent out from college to go and change a nation. And that's where I turned up, like, thinking and expecting. And then I just had to make a sort of bit of a transition uh, just in my sort of understanding of what was going on because I couldn't work it out. We'd have an awesome lecture and it would, you know, there'd be almost like a, a, a sort of holiness in the room where, where the truth of God was revealed and taught. And, and no one would, would leave the lecture and no one would have anything to say. And then we'd walk into like the, the common room and then someone would talk about the football results from last night. And suddenly everyone came alive. Or they'd talk about, you know, going to the theater this weekend and, and suddenly everyone's coming alive. You know, I was just like, what is this? And it's just like here. Your experts are telling the weather, but you're clueless about the reality of the times that you're in. You know, I remember being taught at college how important it is to have a hobby outside of the ministry, you know, so that you, you know, just stay rested and fresh. And I was just like, I don't want any more hobbies. I want to know Jesus. And, and yeah, exactly. I was like, what I don't need to do is stand on a riverbank throwing nylon into water, pulling nothing out, and then to have a break from ministry to keep me rested. No. 
Jesus is, he said, it, you know, come away, all you are weary, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not a hobby that gives you that. Like, I, I, does this, do you understand what I'm saying? I know it's intense, but, you know, it's like, fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the hobbies that we have, but what comes alive in us when we talk about them? You know, have you ever met someone who, who has nothing to say about what God is doing in their lives, but they're so excited about mountain biking on the downs? It, you know, it's like, wake up is what Jesus is saying. Like, you may be an expert in mountain biking, but you might lose your soul. And you're certainly not helping win other souls with what you're in. And I know that's intense, but, you know, Psalm 16 there are pleasures at his right hand. There's joy in his presence. It's like, what more rest do we need? What I don't need is to go fishing. What I do need is to be in his presence. This, <laughs> that's the challenge of this. And I, I think, you know, it's really, really important to ask ourselves in a rich, materialistic, Western society to say, what are we filling our lives with? Because to follow Jesus requires, I think, increasing ruthless simplicity. To give ourselves to him. You know, I was listening to someone when we did our 40 days of uh, fasting in Lent. They didn't watch telly for the whole time. You know, we just fill our lives. But we, we're deficient in him. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. And then finally, Jesus says, well, no, I don't even need to teach this. This is how many of us know that we're living in a, a rights-aware culture. Like We might even have disconnected from Europe and the European Court of Human Rights, but, but every time someone is squeezed in our culture, their rights come out. And Jesus, Jesus is saying here, if you want to put yourself under an earthly judge, you are putting yourself at risk of getting thrashed within a penny of your life. Because when you put yourself under a, the heavenly judge, his ways will see you through. He said, if someone asks for your coat, go and find your best one and give it to them. If someone strikes you on the cheek, give them the other one. Now, I'm not, what I'm not saying is we shouldn't use the legal system, but what he's saying is go and settle beforehand. Go and make it right. Otherwise, you're putting yourself at the mercy of earthly law rather than heavenly law and uh, all of that. So it's challenging, isn't it? It's challenging when I want to fight. I want to have, you know, well, you don't know what they've done to me. You know, and, and assert ourselves. And the way of Jesus is always self-sacrificial, humble, laying our lives down. Now, the question I know that you're asking yourselves as you listen to this is, how intense is James? <laughs> but alongside that question is, um, how does this all connect together? And to understand that, we need to go back to the start of chapter 12, where in the context of the crowds coming round, Jesus pulls his inner team in, and then he, he, he wants to say something very profound. And... Uh, one thing I loved about James, well, I loved lots about James Peterson's sermon uh, a week ago. It was brilliant, wasn't it? Um, but one thing I loved was that glorious picture he talked about how Jesus invites us into 
a kingdom order. A kingdom order which is utterly different to the order of the way things work in the world. But what I want to just show us now is that that kingdom order utterly crumbles if we don't pay attention to what Jesus is saying. That kingdom order is uh, diluted, uh, tainted. It, It becomes weak through something here. Let's read chapter 12. Meanwhile, when the crowd gathered by the thousands so that they trampled on one another, he began to speak first to his disciples. Beware of the yeast. Now, yeast is tiny, isn't it? But it affects everything. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. That is their hypocrisy. Their hypocrisy. And then he goes on and he teaches all through chapter 12. And this is the conclusion to that chapter. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy when no one's watching. When we're sort of at church and we're pressing in and we're kind of, you know, where John blows his trumpet and we go, yeah. But actually when no one's watching, <laughs> when no one's watching, we're not, we're not going to him in the secret place. Hypocrisy when... We just dial it down in front of those we love for self-preservation or a quiet life. Or because we're afraid of what they'll think of us. Hypocrisy. When we say we're followers of Jesus. You know, a follower of Jesus 2,000 years ago left everything. And yet we're experts at the championship football results. Or fishing or whatever it is. Bake Off. You know, it's like... I want to be an expert at knowing Jesus. I don't want to be an expert on other things. Because that would make me a hypocrite. Or the yeast of the Pharisees' hypocrisy when we fight for our rights rather than following Jesus' teachings. And this is where the kingdom order just crumbles if we allow the yeast of the Pharisees, that is hypocrisy, to be, take root in our lives. Is there anything more disillusioning to 21st century people than hypocritical Christians? And unfortunately, we're losing the, the media war through our own doing. You know, the good thing about some of the past historic abuse scandals coming into the light is that an element of justice is being done and people are... Uh, the church is being made safer. But I'm just like, I could just weep. Because what that does to, to the nation is they, is they go, do you know what? You are just like everybody else. Every other institution, every other you know, body, or where there's, where there's power and all that, you're just like everybody else. And how that then works is, if you're like everybody else, why on earth would I inquire on, about who your God is? Why would I pay any attention? If he's real, you know, the world, non-believers get that God should be transformative. They understand that. Because how the thought process works when they see hypocrisy is, if God is real and you're just the same as us, then something's going wrong here. And either God isn't real or you lot, are total hypocrites and I don't want to spend time with you because you're just like everybody else. 
And that should make us weep. And it should challenge us, as Jesus is challenging his inner team here, to not be like that and to be on our guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. I said to you, that's the connector. I said to you, I'd ask another question, and we'll get there in a minute. But if I ask you the question, who here loves hypocrisy? Okay, if I ask the question, who here hates hypocrisy? Who, Who here doesn't want to be a hypocrite? But how do we deal with that? Because it's a matter of the heart. And the heart of the matter is that if we just say we don't want to be hypocrites, but we don't change, we've got nothing happening on the inside. And what happens is we we might hide our sin. We might hide it better than a lot of other people. But actually, how do we deal with this yeast? And get it out of our lives. And I think this takes us to the end of the parable of the faithful or the unfaithful slave. Jesus says this um, very, very challenging thing uh, in verse 48. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And from the one to whom much has been entrusted even more will be demanded. Even more will be demanded. Well, we haven't just been given much. We've been given everything because we've been given Jesus Christ himself. So the question is, what is he demanding? Now this morning, I think he's demanding a pure and holy church who may not be perfect all the time, but is orienting to get rid of hypocrisy and to live fully for him. And one of the ways that God is doing that in this time, in the season of the British church, for those with ears to hear, is he's bringing back to us the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, which scripture says is the beginning of wisdom. Now, 30, 40 years ago, most Bible preachers would have basically made Christians feel utterly miserable. And so that's why over the last 10 or 20 years, or maybe 30 years, the love of God has been highlighted in our teaching, in what God's been doing in in the church. The problem is, guys, if we're really honest, we've taken the love of God and we've made Jesus our boyfriend or our personal assistant because we're breathing this cultural air that it's all about us and God has been removed from the equation and we're just sort of adding him to our lives. It's, it's my destiny, my inheritance, my identity, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Now, all of those are good and noble and awesome, but they're all secondary (laughs) because it's all about him. And we fold into his story rather than him fitting into my story. And so I think he's bringing back the fear of the Lord. 
Now, the fear of the Lord is not cowering in the corner because we're like afraid and um, you know we're we're, we're kind of uh, concerned that He is is just going to tell us how condemned and terrible we are. No, no, no. The fear of the Lord is the fear of grieving His heart and quenching His presence, grieving the Holy Spirit. And living our lives with a, with a reverence and an awe that he's bigger than us. And actually, I'm here for two seconds flat, and then my life's gone. And in his mercy and his grace, he's, he's brought me in to this divine story. I'm here for two seconds flat, and he's got uh, you know, some work for me to do and discover once I've come to know him. But I'm just going to live sort of consciously awareness that there's another king I'm not on a throne. I'm bowing before the throne. And the fear of the Lord is just being, being concerned that we grieve his heart and, and quench who he is in our lives. You know, um, a while ago, I started praying, Lord, just teach me more and more the fear of the Lord. I, I'm, just, I'm so conscious that like somewhere along the line, I've just you know, dr- drunk this me, me, me thing. And I just want a whole sort of, you know, Copernican revolution just to turn it all around and just, you know, teach me the fear of the Lord. And, you know, if I'm out for a walk on my own with our dog, (laughs) that is with me. And I'm not, I'm just illustrating, I'm not buffering a halo. And now I can't walk past someone else's dog dirt (laughs) without picking it up. Because I'm like, it's your earth, Lord, and you made me a steward of it. And I can't just leave that, that dirt, dog dirt on the floor and I'm picking it up and bagging it and, you know, and all of that. Does this make sense? Or, or it's going to someone saying, I'm so sorry if I was abrupt or if I put that across in the wrong way. Will you forgive me? You know, um, I went to uh, one of our children yesterday. And I, was, I said, I'm just so sorry that I think I just was wrong when I said that. And I just want to ask you to forgive me. It's living in that fear of the Lord. But the flip side of the fear of the Lord is something that God is releasing and wanting to give to us more and more and more. And it answers this question, uh, for those who have been entrusted with much, much will be required. Those who have been given much, much will be demanded. My question is, what is Jesus demanding of you and me? And to go there and answer that question, I want to bring us to probably my favorite Bible guy because he was appointed as the rock on which Jesus would build his church. And what I love is he's like a blancmange. You know, he's like the opposite of rock. He promises to like slay everything going for Jesus. And then five seconds later, he's betraying him. You know, Jesus is like giving him the inner secrets of his kingdom. And then he's like, Let's pull out the bazooka and just smoke everybody. You know, he's constantly getting stuff wrong. They're kicking demons out and they forget, you know, it's all of that stuff. Even post-Holy Spirit Pentecost, he, he suddenly gets 
he goes back to his old sort of sin, which is fearing people, and starts like not eating the food which is sacrificed to idols. And Paul has to come and have a stand-up row with him in Galatians. It's like I oppose Peter to his face, you know, and like God in it, you know. And that's what I love about because you never appoint him to lead a church. He never appointed, you know, abandoned his wife, followed this random rabbi. You know, he's like, he's, he's terrible. But what I love is that it's God's mercy and his grace that he uses him. But you know what Jesus says to Peter? Jesus doesn't say, will you crucify your hypocrisy? Jesus doesn't say, will you be faithful like the faithful slave? Jesus doesn't say to him, stop fishing. <laughs> don't have hobbies will you be will you be righteous will you be holy what does Jesus say to him Jesus says do you love me do you love me do you love me and I think that's the question like when everything is stripped away it's the question that that should punch us in the guts from the greatest commandment where Jesus says, Jesus is asked the question, as, again as a trap, like what's the most important thing? What's the most important thing? And Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. You know, Jesus is saying to Peter before he ascends, before he releases him, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? When all is stripped away, And I think that's the question for each and every one of us that the Spirit of God is not only challenging us with, but wanting to release deeper revelation of the heart of God and who Jesus is like never before. Because Jesus wants to say to you and he wants to say to me, do you love me when all is stripped away? When you're getting hostility from family, when you're left to your own devices and your fleshly appetites desire just the good life. When you want to go mountain biking and, and, and you don't want to press into the Lord. When, when you want to fight for your rights. Do you know what's going to carry you through? Is that you have fallen in love with Jesus that you, you have had a revelation of who he is that's so deep that you just love him for who he is, not even for what you gain. It's become where our hearts have been transformed and we can say we love you with our whole heart. Every way that our spirits connect, we love you. And every way our mind, it it has looked at what you've done on the cross and the resurrection, how you are the center of all the scriptures, how you're coming again and there's no more glorious thing. Our minds have looked and studied and we can find no lovelier person than you, Jesus. And our, uh, and our souls, our emotions have found healing in beholding him. That we actually have found healing that we love him back in such a way that it lifts us out of our flesh. And we just love him for who he is. And so with our strength, we're like, give me just a keyboard. Who cares? We're going to worship him. And we're going to worship him on Fridays. And we're going to worship him when it's hard. And we're going to worship him when everybody is coming against us. And we're going to worship him when we're abundant and full of luxury. We're going to throw all that aside because it has no place. But we love him for who he is because there's no lovelier person. It's like David said. David said, 
I don't even need to be released from danger. There's one thing I desire, one thing I seek after. It's to see you more. It's Psalm, the psalmist in Psalm 73. There's nothing in earth or heaven that I desire other than you. Whom have I but you? There's nothing I desire other than you. I just want to. I just want to say to us this morning, this is the demand Jesus is making, but it's a glorious demand. Some of you will know that um, this summer, um, and I'll just share this just to uh, hopefully illustrate, um, I did a bit of a deep dive this summer into what was going on in the Great Awakening in New England uh, across America. And uh, this is Jonathan Edwards speaking, who was not only one of the most awesome preachers for that period, but also became an incredible philosopher and uh, really shaped a lot of uh, American uh, society in, in that age. And, and Jonathan Edwards, um, I came across this. Once, as I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737... Having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner was customary to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary, of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man, and his wonderful, great, pure and sweet grace and love, and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception which continued as near as I can judge about an hour which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt the ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. Jesus, I know that you're asking us the question at this time, do you love me? And we want to say to you as a church, we love you, Jesus. And I want to pray that you would show yourself. Jesus, just may revelation come more and more and more of your majesty, your beauty, your glory. We just say thank you, Jesus, for how you've spoken to us already, but we just ask for more now that we would lie in the dust and be annihilated to be full of the holy love of you. I say, Jesus, just fill your church with yourself. We don't want anything else. Just give us more and more of you. We love you. I'm sorry, uh, Lord, where we've filled your church with Pride and self-satisfaction and all the stuff. We repent, Lord. Oh, we thank you for your mercy, your kindness to catch us up in who you are. But we just want to pray, Jesus, don't let it stop here. Take us higher. Take us further. And not for an experience, Jesus, but just to know you, simply to know you, to walk with you, to be with you every single day, 
to serve you the whole of our lives with all of our strength. We love you, Jesus. And Lord, fill, fill this church and fill the church right across this nation with yourself. Lord, let revelation come more and more and more of who you are. Lord, we're crying out for more of you, more of you. We thank you that you've saved us, you've healed us, you've delivered us. But we just say, Jesus, we're so hungry for more. We're so hungry for more. We love you. There's none like you. We don't want to be with anyone else. We don't want to have our lives filled with anything else. Squeeze out every idol. Squeeze out every appetite for earthly things. Fill us with yourself, we pray. Have your church. Have my life. Have, have this church. Have the land. We give it all to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. It's another opportunity where I get the great privilege of speaking on behalf of the whole church. Just to say thank you, James, for the cost. The words Jesus left with Peter was, will you feed my sheep? So we honor you, James, that you continue to feed us with far more that we can digest in one mouthful. I don't want to waffle on, but we're, we're not going to pull a handbrake to our, our ministry time of response now, but actually celebrating communion for what it is, embracing in the, the mysteries of it as we get to engage, recall, remember all that Jesus is, all that he's done for us. And just as Jesus stands before us, it says, do you love me? That's for us to, to respond to. So my encouragement, also a challenge as chaos might burst through the doors in the form of our young people, is let's keep this worshipful. And even as we engage in this ritual, let's receive, but let's continue to be reflecting on actually all those, those words of conviction, the truths of Jesus that have been revealed to us. What difference will they make as we leave this place today, as we go to work tomorrow, whatever life looks like? Really, what is the, the vow, if you would, you're making to God? Say, God, by your grace, let me walk in this way tomorrow. Does that sound all right? So as James reminded us and prayed at the beginning. Holy Spirit, come be amongst us. We cannot worship you without your spirit. Guide us in your ways, we pray.